Hey there, have you heard about the Rosenman Innovator Program? If you're looking to scale up your health tech idea, this program is for you. I'm Carly Grant from the UCSF Rosenman Institute, and I have the pleasure of connecting entrepreneurs like you with people who can help you grow your business faster. The Rosenman Innovators Program provides hands-on mentorship, guidance, and a whole suite of benefits that help you navigate the path to commercialization. So what are you waiting for? Applications are open now. Don't miss your chance to be a part of the Rosenman Innovator Program. Join us today to successfully fundraise, gain visibility, and grow your network. To find out more, go to rosenmaninstitute.org slash programs slash Rosenman dash innovators. So you go to the pharmacy counter and, and of course this becomes the pharmaceutical company's burden but the reality is, is there are many players in between um, the pharmaceutical, you know, the pharmaceutical company and the patient, right? There's the health plan itself, there's the PBM, and all of these other players who are making profit off of those rebates and discounts that are not that are hidden, not seen in the system. And so, when the patient comes to, you know, the pharmacy counter. Um, they're not receiving that benefit. And so there was hope that there would be policy um, at the federal level that would pull through to allow the patients to receive that benefit on a greater scale. And in theory, Medicare says, yeah, if Part B patients should receive some benefit from the rebates and discounted negotiated costs, but um, not really. And now from San Francisco and the UCSF Rosenman Institute, the Health Technology Podcast with your host, Christine Winotto. Have you ever wondered what the medical billing codes behind your healthcare bills were? How was your bill determined? Well, you're in luck. Today I'm here with Tamara Thompson, Avidity Bioscience Director and Vice President, Head of Corporate Affairs of Alexion. AstraZeneca rare disease. She is the expert on medical billing codes. I'm so excited to speak with Tamar about her journey toward her current position at Alexion and her insight on rare disease patient policy efficacy. Prior to her joining Alexion, Tamar led federal executive branch strategy and state government affairs for Bristol Myers Squibb and served as a strategic policy advisor for Epi. Tamar has always been a driver toward helping patients through policy. Her work has been instrumental in informing rare disease patient advocacy and healthcare policies. Here's our conversation. Welcome Tamar, thanks for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Christine. It's such a pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's good seeing you again. And um, you've been so busy. And I thought uh, one of the things that I was struck me with a lot of your work is you, you deal with a lot of the government. But then I want to maybe share with our listeners about your journey. How do you decide to go this career path? And yeah. uh, what's your story behind the Tamar now? What's my story? Um, well, I guess in short, the short answer is that um, you learn over time to trust the universe or trust the journey, right? And it kind of guides you. But um, maybe the longer answer that people may be more interested in hearing is that 
you know, I didn't start out. I wish I would have, in some respects, knew what I wanted to do when I was 12 years old, like everyone else. <laughs> you know, it was like, I always knew I wanted to be this. Um, I really didn't have any aspiration other to be in healthcare. I wanted to be a nurse, I thought, initially. So right out of high school, um, I went into a nursing program and I quickly learned that blood wasn't my jam. Like I just know, um, you know, with all of the anatomy part of it, um, I don't have a great bedside manner because telling the patient, suck it up, buttercup, probably not the best, you know, thing for the patient when they're in distress. Um, but like, I, you know, I grew up in a tough love family, so suck it up, buttercup. Um, and so, you know, when you're 20 or 19 and you're like, oh, my God, I spent a year of my life in a nursing program. I, that's forever. Um, and fortunately for me, I had an aunt who was at Baylor Hospital, still is at Baylor Hospital in the health information management department. Way back then, I'm dating myself. We just called it medical records, right? And she told me about health information management and that all of the skills that I had gained in A&P would actually be useful in coding, like medical coding. And um, she wasn't wrong. And so like I pivoted and moved into health information management Um I married an Air Force, you know, guy. And so um, having a coding background was very helpful because there's a hospital and a clinic like everywhere you move, right? And so they all need coders. Um, so it was really um, fortuitous that my aunt gave me this amazing advice, which also became the pivot point for every other job that I had in my career, believe it or not, including to some extent this one. Um, but when I, you know, worked at the hospital, um, our very first duty station was Grand Forks, North Dakota, and I worked at the hospital as a coder. We moved back to Texas, and then I went to work in insurance. And the reason that I did, or, you know, like now managed care, as we call it, um, but I went to work in managed care because they wanted someone who had coding knowledge because they realized that they were paying astronomical amounts of money out in claims because the people who were paying the claims were just data entry clerks. They had no idea what the codes meant on the claims. So the health plans were paying out, you know, millions of, if not billions of dollars of inappropriate claims, um, went to the health plan, worked on benefit plan design, um, had a claims customer service unit. And then I ran the claims unit ultimately for a couple of different payers, learned a lot more than I ever wanted to know. Um, and then that role helped pivot me into life sciences um, because I ended up, you know, <laughs> ACA happened. A lot of people didn't know what medical loss ratio was. I did because I worked on the health plan side. <laughs> and so here's, you know, that coding background, again, a pivot. Um, so I found myself, you know, coming into life sciences and then I guess pivoting into life sciences, into the DC world with ACA, with the Affordable Care Act, for those who are, you know, too young or millennial and <laughs> Gen Zers who don't remember that law. Um, but yeah, when uh, the Obamas were in office and started down the, the road of the ACA, um, my managed care background, you know, really came into um, kind of a level of import for me. And um, I found myself working for a lobbying firm and learned how the sausage of legislation was made um, and did that for a number of years, uh, which is also how I met Mark Samuels, a good friend of ours, <laughs> mm -hmm. and um, went to work for Mark for a while. And then, 
you know, at some point I just kind of decided I really wanted to, for me, go home, which was back to life sciences directly because I really just wanted to, you know, have purpose um, in helping patients in a different way. And I knew how to do that through policy. And, you know, when you look up and your parents are Medicare eligible, then you're like, you're, you know, seeing and hearing the problems. You're like, I can do something to help and fix, you know, and, you know, help and fix this for at least my family. Um, so I really wanted to do that on a broader scale. And I, I went to Bristol-Myers Squibb and joined um, BMS um, initially in the market access team and then moved over to the government affairs team and led state and federal um, government affairs and, and um, policy and um, I've been in life sciences ever since, left BMS to come to Alexion almost three years ago to the date. And now I'm in a global role as the head of corporate affairs for Alexion. So this is a really cool opportunity that um, right place, right time and just being prepared when, you know, experience meets opportunity. Um, and, you know, was very fortunate to have the opportunity to expand my reach to global um, so I have a team of 65 people, um, both U.S. and international, and that includes, you know, advocacy, um, government affairs, communications. And so that's uh, that's kind of the short elevator pitch of maybe a uh, maybe a 90-story building <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> of the background. <laughs> no, congratulations to all your accomplishments. I was kind of like curious a bit in the decoder, like, you know, I'm, I'm not familiar. I've never done like coding is such an important piece in the healthcare. So you mentioned being like you have the experience, not just being at the data entry. How is that important? What information yeah. that you have that informed that decision? It's a great question. And I love that you say it's so important because when I started coding, it was like we were in the basement with the asbestos and they didn't understand the value of the coder. So we would like have to relieve the receptionist because the receptionists were more important than we than we were. <laughs> but that is, um, you know, telling of the times and how reimbursement and policy and big data have started to value the coding. So in, in coding, um, for, for healthcare medical coding, um, it's basically the translation of numerical values into either diagnoses or procedures. And so um, initially, you know, this was used just for payers in order for uh, a provider to be able to communicate with the payer the services that were rendered in order to get reimbursed appropriately. So um, my experience in coding, I'm an ICD-9 coder, not 10. So I don't live, you know, I didn't live the coding life of the transition. Um, same premise though in ICD-10, just um, a broader range of codes for the, you know, for the U U.S. healthcare system. But if you have a diagnosis, you have to be able to type that into a computer system so that that computer will understand the value of that diagnosis uh, whether it's, you know, and, and if you have multiple conditions, we call those comorbidities. So the value of the doctor's time in treating comor comorbid or complicating conditions is obviously greater than if you were just treating one condition. And so when you submit this information, it's very key. It used to be very key for the level of the reimbursement for the physician, right, or the hospital. Um, but what we've found over time is that data is super important for not only reimbursement, but also it's used for clinical trial registry data. 
and um, and now it's also used for and you know healthcare big data research, right? So if you you know take claims data from Humana, United, Medicare, you can evaluate that data and you can like tell a story with the data, and so that becomes a valuable asset within itself. Also tells us how we can, in theory you know, make healthcare better through looking at the claims data. Um, it's very interesting because you can, you know, look at those comorbid complicating conditions and you can see some thematic, you know, um, uh, trends uh, across patient data sets. And that becomes very valuable to payers, but also very valuable to, you know, to companies like mine, right? Pharmaceutical companies. Um, and that sets trends for like what you want to do from a science perspective. And so the challenge, though, is if you're if you don't have good coders who understand the data and who can translate well, then you get garbage in, garbage out. And so the underpinning of the U.S. healthcare system is built upon this information. And so it's really quite funny, right? When I say that, like when I joined the health plan, they just had data entry clerks who were just typing something in and paying it out, and they had no idea like the value of this. 20, 25 years ago of what they were doing. And obviously they were doing it wrong, which is why they wanted to hire someone who understood the value of those codes very differently. And then, you know, like I talked about ICD codes, ICD-10 or, you know, diagnosis codes, but there are also ICD procedure codes for hospitals. Um, every, every pharmaceutical company who has a product in the Medicare Part B space or the medical space wants a Hick PIC code, a healthcare common procedural code, because that's the the linkage to defining their medication. Um, so it is a very important role of health information management, right? Um, that that coding and billing play today. But you know, again, thirty years ago, twenty five years ago, when I started this journey, like you know, they just thought we were down there like writing stuff on medical records, and you know, I have a stack of records that like covered my head every day. I'd have to peek out over the records. And then they're like, hey, re- relieve the receptionist because you're doing nothing better. But meanwhile, the whole revenue cycle <laughs> of the hospital was dependent upon, <laughs> on what we were doing. <laughs> so I think sometimes we have this, at least maybe I have that like, misconception when you did coding is that uh, the hospital probably, you know, because they want to get the highest revenue. Yeah. And so you put the right, what is the right code in order to get yeah. the most out of yes. Yes. the payers? Yes. And tell me more about that. <laughs> I mean, there yes, there are codes that will get you to that higher level of acuity, which will get you to a higher level of reimbursement. And sometimes you pick and choose the codes based on, it's really about what the documentation represents, right? And if you're a good coder, you should be able to go back to the, you know, uh, well, now it's much more uh, electronic. The medical record is electronic. And and you have companies like Epic who help you <laughs> through an algorithm because it's a yes, no algorithm. And if the patient has, you know, this complication or if they have, you know, four diagnoses, then it, it automatically helps you get there through an algorithm. But back in the day when I did it, it you know, Epic was an emerging concept. It wasn't what it is today or other medical record companies that are electronic medical records. Um, And so what you had to do was you had to flip through the patient's chart and find 
all of those diagnosis codes that were linked to the patient. And then to your point, Christine, so there are um, evaluation and management codes, which are the current procedural terminology codes that translate to the service, right? So a 99211, a 992121314151, those are routine visits with your doctor. And the more diagnoses you have, the higher eligibility you are for reimbursement. That's the general theme. And so, you know, a good coder wants to find all of those diagnoses to make sure that it justifies the higher payment. But in today's times, there are payers who figured this out and now they've put benefit rules and parameters in place and they limit reimbursement, right? To say, oh, for an office visit, you can't have anything higher than a three or a four. Like if you're billing for a five, we're going to audit you because there's something wrong here, right? You know, so so th- there's some limitations to that um, on the higher reimbursement levels. Um, This is true with like, you know, uh, infusions as well. So when you're sitting in the infusion chair, um, sometimes uh, the biologics that you're infusing, some are safer than others. And so the complexity of the infusion, depending on if you have to have a physician supervising or if you don't, um, that will also determine the value of the time and how much reimbursement the provider or the clinic will get for sure. Mm-hmm. And so the other part that you mentioned about the medical loss ratio. And mm-hmm. so I, when I think about medical loss ratio, I was thinking about the payers, but I never thought about pharmaceutical company thinking yeah. about that. Yeah, Can you help me understand like the connection between? Yeah. And I don't think we have, you know, um, thought about it um, other than the the rebate, right? So here's the thing with pharma. And this is why I say when we were, Um, debating the ACA, the biggest challenge in the policy debate was that the medical loss ratio does not account for rebates and discounts. So the value of the dollar that the payer gets is, you know, truly based on the premium cost, you know, of care and any rebate discount that the pharmaceutical company gives to that payer isn't counted in the medical loss ratio. So it's free money, right, for them. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, when you look at how hard pharma has fought to try to put rebate rules in place under, you know, pharma, the trade association or bio or, you know, the trades who have fought to um, put rules in place that would limit um, the health plan's ability to collect these rebates and discounts without, you um, disclosing, you know, those uh, resources and pulling them through for patients is really, I think, where we stand. It's, you know, we're fine um, at many levels uh, as an industry. I certainly don't want to speak for all the pharma companies out there, but in general, I I know that pharma companies are absolutely um, fine with helping patients, right? We, you know, we want to see patients have access to therapies. And so, to the extent that you can reduce that burden for patients, that's uh, something that we aspire to do on a daily basis. However, when the health plan doesn't account for those rebates or discounts, i.e. lowering the cost of drugs and it doesn't get pulled through to patients, um, that's when it really becomes unfair to the end, you know, to the mm-hmm. end receiver of those medications. So in other words, um, and I won't go into the complexities here because there's, you know, certainly drug channels and others have you know, put a many of articles out about this particular issue. 
but it's effectively like the sticker price of your car, right? And maybe this isn't the best example in a time of inflation when cars are (laughs) such a hot commodity and supply chain issues. But effectively, it's like the sticker price of a car Um, outside of supply chain and inflation. You know, cars used to have a sticker price and then you get like a rebate or a discount or um, you know, some type of offering from the dealership or from the car manufacturer themselves. And so your car may have cost $40,000, but you got $3,600 in rebates or discounts. And that would be to you, the consumer. And that would be off of the list price of your car. And so, you know, if you don't account for those rebates and discounts through medical loss ratio and through other variables, what happens is that, you know, the consumer pays that sticker price. And that's what happens to patients every day with drugs. So you go to the pharmacy counter. And and of course, this becomes the pharmaceutical company's burden. But the reality is, is there are many players in between um, the pharmaceutical, you know, the pharmaceutical company and the patient, right? There's the health plan itself, there's the PBM, and all of these other players who are making profit off of those rebates and discounts that are not, that are hidden, not seen in the system. And so when the patient comes to, you know, the pharmacy counter, Um, they're not receiving that benefit. And so there was hope that there would be policy um, at the federal level that would pull through to allow the patients to receive that benefit on a greater scale. And in theory, Medicare says, yeah, Part D patients should receive some benefit from the rebates and discount and negotiated costs, but um, not really, right? Like if if it's not included in the medical loss ratio, then, you know, the value of that pull through is limited. And we've seen cases where, Um, in the Medicaid world where PPMs have actually not pulled through and given the state or the, you know, Medicaid um, beneficiaries the the pull through of the value of those discounts. Can you tell us more about what is medical loss ratio and also during the ACA, what changed that make the medical loss ratio so important? Yeah. So um, medical loss ratio, and I'm just going to look this up um, a bit so I can um, make sure that I get it completely right. It's the the patient dollars spent on care by the health plan, right? So it's the it's the money that a health plan receives through um, premium dollars, whether it's the patient premium dollars or the money that it's receiving from the government, but it's the, the funding pool that is spent on actual patient care. So this is what the medical loss is, right? And then the ratio part of that is how much of the dollars that you're receiving from the premiums or other funds are you spending on the medical care? And so that's the loss, right? So this is the medical loss piece because anything above that you're either using for administrative costs or profit. And so um, during the ACA, there was a debate about this. And so then now it's capped off. There's a a percentage that each health plan has to spend on medical loss ratio, meaning that, and I'll just make this up because I've, I've forgotten, it's been well over 10 years now what the number is, but I think you know, 95, 80 to 95% of the plan's cost now has to be spent on medical loss uh, ratio uh, percentages. And it, and it used to be much lower, right? You see some plans spending 60%, which means that they were paying very few dollars in the ap- output of claims and keeping that money for either profit or their, you know, own administrative costs. And when I say administrative costs, I mean, they're like paychecks and, you know, other things, right? So um, the government 
refined that and said, no, no, if people are paying for claims dollars for, you know, their premiums, they expect for you to pay these claims out on their behalf and you have to spend at least X percentage, you know, 80, 85, 90%, 95%, whatever the number is now on the claims that you're paying out the door versus what you're putting in your pocket as profits or what you're paying your leaders and staff and, and, and cost as well. And so that's important because if the, as I mentioned, the rebates that pharmaceutical companies give to PBMs or health plans are not included in that number, then that's sure that's just straight profit going into their pockets, which is not being pulled through to the patient. So the patients and, receive none of that value. Right. Unlike unlike the car company. Yes. Unlike the car company. <laughs> This podcast is sponsored by Brown Rutnick's Global Life Sciences Group, a team of legal professionals that help life science companies, lenders, and investors around the world turn good science into good business. Learn more at brownrudnick.com. This podcast is also sponsored by Canon Quality Group. Canon Quality Group has been helping med tech startups set up quality management systems for over 10 years. If you're unsure when to get started with quality management in your startup, Turn to the experts at canonqualitygroup.com. So well, I, I don't want to, I, I know, I feel like I'm going, I ask a lot of the question around the area. I can go on and on about that, but I want to also touch base a little bit about your journey, your background, it's like, you know, doing a lot of the understanding about the claim, the CPT, and yeah. you mentioned about working in a lobbying company. Yeah. What is that? Like, what is the role of lobbying? Yeah. And oftentimes, get such a bad rap, but there's it a does, right. right? right? <laughs> I feel like, yeah, lobbyists and lawyers and <laughs> there's like a whole little group of people that when you tell them what you do, then they're like, oh, yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, at the end of the day, a lobbyist is in, um, in the purest terms, uh, someone who builds relationships, right, with um, various parties and introduces those various parties together so that they can come to terms or, or have opportunity to engage. So I think they're like a mediator um, and, you know, or an access, you know, and a value for access is kind of the way lobbying works. But I mean, in DC, right, it becomes much more um, gritty um, in, you know, in ways, but at, at its purest form, lobbying is, you know, providing access and opportunity. They serve as mediators. So you, they spend a lot of time, they build trust with members of Congress and um, to the extent that they can, um, government officials, um, some are exempt or, you know, can't work with government officials, but to the extent that they can, they build those relationships with these people um, um, so that they can have some kind of trust. And then companies, uh, uh, health plans, uh, pharmaceutical companies, all kinds of companies hire these people then to help them get in the door with those trusted relationships. And so it's kind of like, you know, we were talking about this, it's, you know, who you know, right? And so it's the getting in the door because if if the lobbyist has a trusting relationship with the policymaker, um, them bringing you in the door is suggestive that, that the policymaker can trust you too, to an extent, right? Because they're saying, I vouch for you. Um, and the things that come out of those discussions aren't always <laughs> at the hand of the lobbyist. Um, sometimes it's between the lawmaker and, you know, the trade associations or others. 
Um, but effectively, the trade associations serve as lobbyists too, right? They lobby Capitol Hill, um, but some, you know, and sometimes the independent lobbyists, independent companies are, you know, behind the scenes on certain things and will help draft legislation that will, you know, lead to, to various policy um, uh, provisions that that are placed into legislation that either is to the benefit of some and to the detriment of others. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so that you know, in its purest form, that's the job. Uh, I I found it fascinating, um, interesting, challenging, um, and then at some point redundant, <laughs> like redundant. <laughs> in what way is redundant? I mean, it's, you know, it's the same, like, look, our Congress is octogenarians. They're like 80 years old. So it's the same people that you're dealing with Congress after Congress. And it becomes frustrating. I remember going to Capitol Hill when I first uh, started, you know, this journey and dealing with D.C. and meeting with the staffer for a member of Congress. And we were talking about a new technology, right, like a new drug that was coming to market. and. We wanted to create new policy for this new drug. And they and I remember the staffer saying to me, well, what's the precedent for that? And I was like, it's new. new. <laughs> that means there is no precedent for it. It's new. Um, and so it's very challenging to, you know, be in a town where it's so redundant like that, where everybody's looking for the precedent because there are a bunch of lawyers, right? Legal precedent for some things. Like what's the case that you can make based on some previous case? And um, that is in direct contrast with what we do in the life sciences community because we are looking to innovation every day to power the next generation of medicines, therapies, and curative treatments for patients. And so we're not looking, and some companies are, but, you know, in in general, we're not always looking for something that's redundant. We're looking for what's new when you're look when you're talking about like cell therapy and mRNA and, um, you know, these new amazing treatment options, even IO, when I started that journey, when I was at Bristol um, working on in policy for IO, these were really new and innovative therapies. And so having conversations with folks who want to look to an existing therapy or an existing treatment to kind of point to put you in a box um, becomes really frustrating um, that you don't have a lot of champions that are looking to say, you know, and at one point in time we did, right? Like there were years in certain administrations where we had champions that were looking to say, we need to be innovators and we need to be leaders. And now it's not not necessarily the case um, across the, almost across the board in the Congress. So it becomes somewhat debilitating and frustrating, um, mm-hmm. you know, to have such a, uh, a negative, you know, kind of lens on what you do when you look at the pandemic and what pharma brought to the table and you look at, you know, curative therapies like CAR T and, you know, other um, treatments. And then, but you're, you know, you're met with that resistance, not only on Capitol Hill, but um, at the state house as well, because pharma's just built such a reputation. Um, Mm -hmm. It's challenging, you know, to be kind of going up that uphill battle, like everywhere you go, right? It's not just like, oh, it's not just DC, but it said every state house as well. (laughs) Yeah. I think it's all all about the narrative, how you tell the story and the self-interest. We all have one. And somehow navigating through that, yeah, make sure yeah. that everybody wins some. 
everybody has to win something, right? And so that's the part where it becomes challenging. I mean, to be fair, like there, I can see there were times when, you know, my industry wasn't willing to budge. It was just fight, fight, fight. Um, You know, and then now there are other industries that aren't willing to budge. It's just fight, fight, fight. So, you know, I think you have to, what's fun and cool is when everybody comes to the table and is willing to give to get for the best interest of, of the patient uh, versus the best interest of the pocketbook. And I, mm-hmm. I say that naively and I'm not naive. I understand, you know, the value of what everybody's doing, but that's when it becomes cool is when, you know, you're working for the best interest of the patient and you work backwards from there. Of like, mm-hmm. what can everybody do to work together uh, to the value of the system and the value of the patients that we serve? Yeah. So how important is the patient advocacy group then? Like yeah. how big of their role? Super, super important because, you know, look, we're pharmaceutical companies and, you know, unfortunately, like America views us right up there with like, you know, guns and tobacco for whatever reason. Uh, that's a whole nother podcast, right? <laughs> but um, the patient voice is the most important voice, not only in, in my opinion, on Capitol Hill, but also in, in the healthcare community. So when you think about the patients, like let's move this away from the whole lobby in DC, but those patient advocacy organizations serve to inform our business strategies, right? We have to understand that patient journey to understand, you know, what treatment options are going to be the best options for patients and how to uh, to go about, you know, navigating um, on our side. And I think it's equally as important for those patient groups to help policymakers understand their journeys and what's important to them, um, particularly in rare where the patient groups um, are few, you know, there are not right. a lot of them. And most of the groups are quite um, frankly, as they should be focused on the patient journey and experience because most you know, rare disease patients where I work today, um, you know, it will take five to seven years for them to get a diagnosis. Uh, and then, you know, after diagnosis, only 5% of those diseases will have a treatment option. And so um, you're spending most of your life as a caregiver or patient yourself who has the rare disease or, you know, and, and 80% of rare diseases are genetic and 50% of those are kids. So that means someone is caregiving for that child and you're going to doctor after doctor after doctor, either telling you you're crazy or saying your kid doesn't, there's nothing wrong. Um, so most of them spend their time trying to figure out what's wrong. And they're not focused on the policies in Washington, D.C. or at the state house, right? They're focused on how do I get my family member better? Or how do I get myself better? Or if I can't get myself better, how do I just know what's wrong with me? And so, you know, understanding that is hugely important. Like, I mean, the Congress should understand that. And Mm -hmm. it's important for us to understand that. It's important for payers to understand that too. You know, I think it's, yeah, it's hugely important for the totality of the healthcare system. What I find is also really interesting is that oftentimes, you know, volume, if you have a lot of people, things tend to move faster. With the rare disease, like, yes, you're saying, the population of people who has the rare disease is small. Yeah. In the pharma industry, it's an industry. Yeah. And how do you, I was just sometimes yeah. wrap myself around, it's like, you know, how do they push forward? Yeah. And yet you have the the policy also support. Yeah. 
that. Yeah. I mean, it honestly, it hasn't been an industry until more late of late or now. And um, I won't, you know, put a lot of credence onto Alexion because I didn't get clearance, you know, for the talking points. But, you know, I will say there are companies and, and not just Alexion, but, you know, I look at, um, you know, there are a few companies that kind of dug into the rare disease space 30 years ago, 40 years ago. Um, and at that time, I will say there was policy that was supportive, right? Like if you think about the Orphan Drug Act, um, that legislation is probably close to 40 years old. Yeah. So mm-hmm. like, you know, um, there were policies that were supportive. I think if you look back at cancer and rare disease and, you know, areas where there's been progress, um, that was done largely because there was policy to support innovation and forward movement. Um, I think the U.S. led on that with the Orphan Drug Act. And then we saw several other countries follow suit. You know, we had the Europe do a very similar type of policy. Japan and others, you know, follow suit as well in creating policies that made it um, maybe easier to uh, bring drugs to market, uh, the, you know, pediatric uh, exemptions and and opportunities for rare disease through policy avenues, I really, I think really paved the way for those few companies 30 years ago that were willing to, you know, go it down that path and, and, uh, you know, to, to try to find treatments for rare patients. But it's, mm-hmm. it is an industry, but it's not, I, mean, I think it gets a lot of visibility these days because, you know, cost and dollars and things of that nature. But, you know, when I say there are 10,000 rare diseases, but um, only 5% of those have treatments. That's really not an industry, is it? It's, you know, <laughs> 5% of the patients, you know, who have, if you're lucky enough to have, and I say lucky in an, un, you know, in, a, in you know, in an unfortunate scenario, but if you are diagnosed and then you find that there's a treatment option for you, and sometimes there are cases where people are diagnosed and it's too late in their journey and there is a treatment option, but it's just too late. Mm-hmm. Um so, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, there are companies um, that have, you know, focused on things like cystic fibrosis, sickle cell, um, but there's so many additional rare diseases out there that really need treatment um, and innovation. And it's not, it's not happening. And my biggest fear, um, you know, for the community is that we're putting policies in place that might set us back, you know, globally mm-hmm. in this respect. So it's, you know, and I think it becomes newsworthy uh, just because of cost and other things. But um, it's, you know, it's a smaller community than I think, you know, than than what people believe. Yeah. And I think it shares so much about sometimes, you know, you put as a citizen, sometimes we don't pay attention about the policy being put in place. Yeah. And the impact can be pretty amazing and uh, or it could be pretty detrimental. And sometimes... Yeah. We are so impatient in a way when policy happened. The first reaction, everybody was just angry about things. And, you know, when the ACA got passed, some people just got really angry about things. People don't mm-hmm. like change. But it's amazing how a good policy with a good intent is never perfect, but it helped move to the right direction. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And I think that's so important now because the technology is moving faster than than policy, right? And so it's really important to be flexible and nimble uh, to allow that innovation to continue to occur. Yeah. Okay. Um, One last question. 
Yeah. Um, you know, like thinking about your journey, you started as a nurse and, you know, your aunt inspired you to be involved in a CPT code. Like your journey yeah. is yeah. kind of not Weird. straight line Online. in a way, yeah. <laughs> but make it very exciting. And you learn learning a lot along the way. What are things that, you know, advice that you can give somebody who is starting out now? Yeah, right? I think... Um, Probably the best advice is that careers are lattices, not ladders. Um, someone told me that. And, you know, even in my mature years, I've, you know, heard that again. And I think it's really important for younger generations. We tend to, you know, you and I were talking about like kind of the, you know, the American dream and how we're, you know, uh, believe it to be something that it's maybe loosely built upon, but not exact. And, um, you know, I think young people come into the workplace and they believe that if, you know, uh, especially the, the younger generations, um, Gen Z, millennial types, you know, I need to be the CEO in five years. <laughs> you know, and If I'm not the CEO in five years, then I'm quitting and moving on to the next company. And, and listen, I mean, if you have the aspiration to be the CEO and an entrepreneur, that is great, more power to you. But the reality is, is that the way that most industries work, um, and particularly mine, uh, where I live, is that um, it takes a lot of time and years to, you know, to build experience, to really have an impact at a leadership level. And it should be okay and actually encouraged for people to move around laterally. Um, you know, not every job that I take was a promoting opportunity. Sometimes I took steps back to move forward. And so one example of that is I mentioned that, you know, we have a shared mutual friend, um, went to work for him and, you know, um, did consulting and I loved it. But when I went to, you know, the pharmaceutical sector to come back to life sciences, I took a step back. I went into a market access role at a level lower than, you know, several layers lower than what my title at the consultancy, you know, commanded. But I wanted to move back into industry, number one. Um, I wanted to learn new things. And so moving into market access where I had been in government affairs, you know, um, I had, I didn't know that I had knowledge of certain things that I did, quite frankly, but I, I hadn't the experience to prove that right on the market access side. Um, and so going into market access at that company, it was a huge opportunity and I did learn a lot. And um, that became a foundation build for, you know, the job, the next job in that company and the next job in that company. And then this job that I have today, right? Like, so I, you know, very, I think I think differently than a lot of my um, government affairs counterparts because I, I didn't come from Capitol Hill. I didn't work for a senator or a congressman or at CMS, which some people so highly value. But what I did do is I worked in a doctor's office. I worked at a hospital. I worked for a health plan. And then I, you know, worked in the commercial business side of uh, life sciences. And so my lens and perspective on what good policy is, is maybe somewhat different than some of my colleagues. But none of those were like, I would love to say, oh, I just decided I didn't like nursing. I quit that program. I took a coding program and then I became the VP of corporate affairs. That's not how it happened, right? Like I had a lot of, you know, and I'm an Air Force wife, right? So I had to move a whole bunch of times. And every time, listen, I'm, you know, I'm dating myself, but like back in the 90s, there was no internet and cell phone the way that we have today. So finding your next job was really um 
you know, getting out there and hitting the pavement, writing and applying for jobs, you know, going to the physical center and putting in an application. <laughs> so that's exhausting. Um, you know, it wasn't any of this online business and fill it out and, you know, like duplicate it 14 times for 14 jobs. It was none of that. Um, and then you had to go to Kinko's and like, if you remember Kinko's right. and like print your resume 50 times. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so all of that to say that like, and you, you saw know, a typo and it was like, bang. Yeah. And then you printed that typo 50 times. Damn it. Oh, you know, so <laughs> it's not, you know, it's not, it wasn't an easy journey, but it was worth it. You know, moving from Dallas, you know, Texas to Grand Forks, North Dakota, um, was a shell shock, right? Like it was, you know, a cultural shock. You know, there, um, I know people can't see me on the podcast, but like, you know, I'm an African-American woman and moving from Dallas where I had access to hair salons that could do African-American hair um, to North Dakota where there was no hair salon that could do African-American hair for four hours away. I had to like go to, you know, Minneapolis, St. Paul, where Prince, when he was still alive, lived (laughs) and get my hair done. And I know people are like, what does that have to do with your job? But like, you can't go to your job interview looking like Michael Jackson when he was with the Jackson 5. You got to like look appropriate, you know. Um, So there's all of that stuff that, you know, contributes to your journey and, you know, makes it uniquely your journey. And like I would say to young people, embrace that because, you know, I didn't. And and I think I lived in a time when it wasn't okay to, quite frankly, right? Like, and, you know, I, the whole third podcast about Black women and their hair, but, we can, you know, the, somebody else is doing that on Hulu right now. But, yeah. <laughs> but um, I think, you know, embrace the journey, embrace the things that make you uniquely you, um, appreciate the time that it takes to, you know, to, to grow and know that those experiences lead you to a place to where you're a better leader for people. Um, for me today, my journey is not about like, yeah, sure. I'd like to grow and move into the next job. Right. But the job I'm in today is about helping my people be successful. I really want for my team to have the best experience working, you know, with me, for me to help patients. Um, I want to see every person on my team develop and grow into the best person that they can be, whatever that journey is for them. And so like when I was 25, my life was all about me. And, you know, now I have something to offer, you know, to others to help their journey, to enhance their journey and experience of their professional careers. And I don't think you're going to do that if you like ascend to the CEO in five years. Right? <laughs> you, <Right. know? laughs> you have not gone through that experience to have no. that. Yeah empathy or yeah something and like just that. the just the knowledge of like what it takes to you know expand and grow it's not just about like doing the work there's more to every person's journey than doing the work and i um i'll kind of close and say this like you know people don't have empathy to your point of if you don't have kids you don't know what it's like to be a parent um and you know and so if you're upset with people because you know, they can't work and from nine to five, right? This is why flex hours or, you know, the um, being able to be amenable to fit people's lives, you lose out on good talent. But if you're young, you don't understand that because you're just focused on, 
you know, we need people to get this job done. But like sometimes the best talent is the mom that has to work from like 10, you know, from like four in the afternoon to 10 at night because like the kids are taking the priority. And so sometimes that best talent, you know, give them the flex to, to, you know, to do that. But when you're young and you're, you haven't experienced that journey in life, you don't know that. And so you're missing out on that best talent. And then, you know, how can you be successful as, as a leader if you're not cultivating the talent? So I would say embrace the journey, make it a lattice, not a ladder. And, um, you know, embrace those things that make you uniquely you as well. Yeah, well, that's great. That's great advice. Thank you so much. Thank you, Christine. This has been fun. And it's great to see you. I really, I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Health Technology Podcast. We want to thank our executive producer, Herminio Neto, and our podcast engineer, Andrew Rojek. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to subscribe and leave a review. The Health Technology Podcast is available on all major platforms.